Hello you. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode of my podcast, Soundtracking. It's great to have you along. I would love to know if any of you have in fact ventured out to the cinema and what you've seen and how you found that experience. It'd be great to kind of know how you're coping with that because I know for some it's it's an easy step back into that world, but for others there's a little bit more anxiety around that whole um, environment. So I'd love to know um, if you don't mind sharing your experiences over the last few weeks as to what you have and haven't been able to do with regards to the cinema. And one thing that I'd love to do actually is just throw a little um, independent film your way as a suggestion of something you might want to go and see in the cinema. It's called Jumbo and it's been uh, written and directed by uh, a French director called Zoe Whittock and it's her feature film debut. Um, it tells the story of a young French girl who falls in love with a funfair ride. Sounds bonkers? It is, but it's also beautiful. So I just wanted to throw that your way as a suggestion. I've got a little interview that I did with her up on my Instagram TV, um, just giving you a bit more information about the film. So there you go. There's a little tip for you before we even get to this week's episode, because uh, our guest on this week's soundtracking is a documentary maker returning to the podcast for a third time. Nick Broomfield is always splendid company and joins me once more to discuss his new film, Last Man Standing, which is a companion piece to Tupac and Biggie, which he made back in 2002, about the murders of the eponymous rappers. Here, though, he delves deeper into the role death row records impresario Suge Knight played in their deaths. Knight is currently in prison for manslaughter following a fatal hit and run. Now, plenty more on the incredible story of Biggie and Tupac shortly. First, though, a word from our very good friends at Grass & Co. Now, if you are a regular listener to Soundtracking, you'll have heard me well, talking at length about this brand because I am genuinely a huge fan of their products. But first, I want to clear up a few things for some of you who might not be aware of what CBD is and its benefits. CBD stands for cannabidiol, which is a natural extract of the hemp plant, both legal and non-intoxicating. Now, Grass & Co are a premium CBD range of the finest quality, sustainably sourced and blended with complementary botanical ingredients like chamomile, ginger, turmeric and ashwagandha, which not only make it taste lovely, but help relax your mind and soothe your body. Now, why do I use it? Well, I use it because, quite frankly, it makes my day a little bit easier. I find that it helps me with my anxiety, stress levels and sleeping. So maybe for you, now's the time to give CBD a go. And if so, well, I can highly recommend Grass & Co products. There are three ranges, Calm, Rest and Ease. And I'm particularly fond of the Calm range, which also comes with complementary products like aromatherapy candles, pillow spray or, great for any muscle issues, their CBD balm. They're all there to help you with your daily routine, bringing a touch of tranquility to whatever lays ahead for you. Grass & Co CBD oils contain no trace of THC. All the CBD products are totally legal to buy, consume and supply in the UK. Interested? Well, then how about you get 25% off plus free shipping at grassandco.com forward slash sound. All you need to do 
is use the discount code SOUND at checkout to claim your 25% off the Grass & Co Calm Ease and Rest CBD ranges. Discover CBD today and visit grassandco.com for a better night and day. That's grassandco.com forward slash sound. And so to Last Man Standing, which is scored by Nick Broomfield's regular collaborator, Nick Laird Close. And it's with his title track from the film that we begin. Nick how are you good yeah good it's nice to be back actually it's been a long time it's nice to have you back um welcome back to soundtracking last time we spoke was for um Marianne and Leonard and we had a, a beautiful conversation uh, about that film and you're back in this world with with um Last Man Standing which has been nearly 20 years since you originally kind of you know, wanted to to explore that that world and Biggie and Tupac's story. And I, I was really interested to find out what was the catalyst for you to to dig deeper. You're quite right, because it, it's kind of a diversion of the trajectory that I was working on. I mean, the you know, the film about Marianne and Leonard, the film about my father were mm. both kind of very personal films. And dealing with a different kind of sensibility, which I have enjoyed working with. The reason I kind of went back to, you know, a very different kind of film and it were a very different kind of subject was really that I had a, you know, on a lot of these films, you get a friendship and you get a, a bonding with the person. I, I was very fond of Russell Poole. I thought he was, I felt for him, you know, he went out on a limb and got, uh, into terrible personal problems, really, just because he he believed and he fought, he believed in the truth and he followed his beliefs, and because of that, you know, not only was he sort of chucked out of the LAPD, but sort of vilified in the press, and his marriage broke up, and he started drinking, and you know, it was a very sad fall. And in 2015, he uh, was at the uh, sheriff's office headquarters uh, still arguing his case and when he had a massive heart attack and died on the spot and subsequently I mean I thought all that was tragic but I think subsequently these other films came out largely from the work of Greg Kading who was um, an LAPD officer and he sort of took over the case to really to defend the LAPD against the Biggie Smalls lawsuit yeah. 
And, you know, he came up, obviously, with a very different theory, which completely exonerated the LAPD. They had nothing to do with it at all. Uh, and in so doing, he also really cast dispersions on Russell Poole, uh, which I thought was untrue, unprofessional. And uh, I just felt that the uh, theory that they came up with was really paper thin. It didn't hold water at all. Um, basically, that this other gang member called Pucci was the hitman for, for Biggie. But, you know, Pucci was not a, a, a trained hitman. None of the guys I spoke to who were gang members with Pucci believed that Pucci had done it. These were the guys who worked with Suge Knight. And you could just tell they were like, that wasn't Pucci. And meanwhile, this, you know, this piece came out on a, a series, actually, called Murder Rap on Netflix, which most people bought into. I felt it was irresponsible of actually Netflix to put it on without really doing any due diligence. And I think we live in a world today where the rigors mm -hmm. of journalism have really uh, faltered. And there's very little proper fact checking. There's very little real looking into things. I, I felt Netflix were irresponsible to put it on. Uh, I felt it was a, a hollow program, which really annoyed me. Um, and I felt it didn't do, obviously didn't do Russell justice. And I just thought, well, I, I'm going to look at this again, because I, I really don't like what's happened. And I don't really, it's also, I really don't like what's happened to, I think, investigative journalism and the canons of investigative journalism that I think have, have made those stellar programs that we all loved. You know, even Panorama's, a, you know, very thorough, you know, the world in actions, that kind of world of journalism, you know, has disappeared almost. So that's kind of where this film came from. And it, it's not really the trajectory that I want to continue working in. You know, I like to go back to the other kind of Marianne and Leonard, more personal kind of films. And it was an ugly awakening, kind of going back into this world, which is, you know, br brutal. And, uh, and also, I mean, I think what this film deals with more than the earlier one is the sort of human tragedy and death toll that happened. Yeah. And the tragedy for, you know, the gang members too. And the women. The women as well, and particularly that kind of, you know, that that complete disregard for for female existence almost. I mean, you don't even have to be a sort of Me Too supporter to be horrified at those stories. I mean, it's just and, and I think it was a real opportunity to look into the uh, machinations at death row and to ask the question, which is, I think, what the film really does is. How was any of this really possible? What was the chemistry that the structure of this world that enabled these things to happen, which just seems so incredible? And I mean, as an English person who hadn't grown up there, it was kind of, I always kept thinking, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to believe that this could happen in, you know. Yeah. With the with the passing of more time as well, and and with obviously the situation with Suge as well, did you find that there was there were more people willing to talk? There was a, a more of an openness with people because there's there's a couple of specific fantastic characters that 
they're, they're big voices in this in this documentary. Was there a big difference in terms of the access you were able to get to people and how open people would be? Yes, yeah, so I, I think before Shug went to prison, uh, although his authority was diminished and he was being attacked by people in the in the in the hood quite frequently, he still had a power, and I think those blood gang members who had worked with him all those years probably wouldn't have talked at all. Mm. So I think that's a fairly recent thing. And and I think the women, frankly, were, you know, too frightened to, you know, they'd moved out of LA. And I, I think that there was a sort of sigh of relief, actually, when he kind of left town. And when they felt that sort of particular reign of terror was over. And I think people were much more willing to come forward, even people like uh, Layla um, Steinberg, who was the, the Tupac's manager and, and a fair, you know, from a very different kind of background, she had been much too frightened to to come forward and talk, about, you know, about her knowledge about David Mack, the police officer. Yeah. Um, and and they just, I think, they felt that an awful lot of people had been killed, a, lo- a lot of witnesses had disappeared, and that it was something that they weren't going to talk about. So. There was a real change in that respect, you know. Are you ever fearful? Is there ever any moments on this particular shoot where you were, you know, scared sort of thing? Because there's still it's still an intimidating. A lot of it is still quite an intimidating environment, I imagine, to to be around. And it's quite obvious that you've gained an incredible amount of trust with with certain individuals who, you know, they fight your corner in certain situations that we see within the film, you know. No, it's Nick. You know, she shouts across the garden, it's Nick, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a, and I think, you know, this is a community that doesn't use the internet. It's very much street stories and street rumors. And I think, you know, which is how people get killed. You know, when the rumor goes out that you're, you were a cop and you're making a film, it's kind of worrying because they don't, it's not, it doesn't exactly get checked out carefully. It's more like, oh, I'm going to get that mother, you know. Yeah. That's kind of worrying. If there's a rumor going around that you're a cop and you're not who you say you are and you're ripping people off, I think that's how people do get killed. So I was I was concerned with that rumor. And obviously it was great that Pam was able to vouch for us. And I think it would have been a very difficult film, I think, to have made without Pam because she obviously had a credibility and people did did listen to her and believe her. Mm. You know, I love Pam. Yeah, I love Pam too. She's great. You know, we're, you know, in some ways we're the odd couple, but I think you know, <laughs> the real closeness there, and we really enjoy each other's company. So, she she's great, and and I think the film would have just been much, a much more. It w- wouldn't have been as much fun, or in, we wouldn't have had the insight without her. I think when it comes to music this world of the music that's the landscape of the world that you're, you know, that you're exploring this East coast, West coast world of rap. But when you're considering what you can include within the film, obviously there's a, there's a whole, there's whole rights issues and all that kind of thing. And who owns what, what can you show? And, you know, there's certain elements of performance and you have some, some great studio archive in there as, as well. Is that quite a hard thing to navigate when you are, putting the film together and knowing what you can use and then knowing additionally what you need to add into that. Well, it's very, very tricky. It's like kind of walking a tightrope because 
and and obviously you end up working with lawyers who only specialize in fair use and they know exactly you know you have to have a very specific kind of argument the footage has to illustrate a point you know particularly if you're fair using it um obviously that doesn't apply if you can buy it outright but you've also got a very very litigious estate particularly Tupac's estate um that's basically being run by people from Interscope who uh uh, uh, kind of still creaming in the money from there, who want to own everything mm. and who are very, who make life as difficult as possible. It's kind of a creepy thing. And there's been an awful lot of people stealing other people's footage. And I think, you know, there's a lot more trust a few years ago. And then, you know, even people like Layla and people like uh, a couple of other people I talked to <clears throat> had lent people or given people footage out of belief when they were making films and never got it back again. Mm. So people are very, you know, in this particular area, people are very guarded and it takes a lot to get people, you know, much harder than normal to get people's trust. And uh, and obviously, you know, people loved these two guys very much and, and they, it reminds them of, you know, it's not a happy memory. It's not a happy memory of what happened, you know, yeah, it's funny. I, I was lucky enough to speak to um, the actor Tim Roth right. uh, maybe about six months ago. And I wanted to talk to him about working with Tupac on, on Gridlocked. And they'd pretty much just finished filming this film when he was he was then sort of shot. And it was really interesting hearing Tim talk about the, the, the man and the kind of and the character that he was trying to be in the world, he was trying to fit in. It was these two completely compromising and sort of images sort of thing. It was incredible to hear him talk about that. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, I did, you know, I spoke to his, the guys that he'd grown up with in San Francisco and uh, in Baltimore. And, you know, he was a, he was a, yeah, a small guy. He was often, you know, beaten up and bullied. I think that, you know, he had a lot of, you know, he had a very, very tough time. And he was, uh, it was remarkable that he, you know, got a scholarship to the Baltimore School of the Arts, given everything he was going through. But he had such astonishing charisma. I mean, you know, I always remember speaking to his teacher at the school that he was just so talented and, and he had such a kind of radiance in his eyes that he you know, people couldn't help falling in love with him. And I think he was just a brilliant person. But at the same time, I think, you know, he loved being with these big gangsters and playing that character and entering that world and singing about that world and getting completely consumed in it, you know, which ultimately, you know, getting into a fight with somebody who's, you know, a killer. And that's how he makes his living, basically, is not... Well, I mean, I'm I'm really surprised that he wasn't told by the other guys, you know, kept away from, you know, because Frank Alexander, yeah. who was the bodyguard, was horrified. You know, Frank was, Frank, who later committed suicide, you know, he was not a blood gang member. He was a trained bodyguard. And, you know, he was always having to get Tupac out of fights. And, and obviously, Tupac relied on the fact that you've got a massive guy around you who's going to ultimately thaw everybody out 
who might be getting the better of you. You know, so it was a, a bit sad, really, that that all kind of happened and he got so carried away with that. I guess understandable. Mm. You, um, we talked quite a lot in the, um, the last time about working with with Nick on the composing side of, of yeah. you know of of um, of things. And I, I don't know if you needed him in this film at all. Were there was there much need for Nick in in this film? Well, he came up with those great themes, which I thought were wonderful because they were a kind of very classical rendition of that kind of music. And I thought really gave it a, a gravitas that it kind of needed and, and was real drama. Real drama. And I loved, you know, he did some amazing things too. I mean, he obviously did those big themes. And then there was the, the scene, for example, where Danny Boy is singing that. Um, oh, yeah. The, what is it? The, uh, I can't remember the name of the song. Um, Al Green song. It's an Al Green song. Hard to be alone? Yeah, it is. I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. And um, Danny had actually originally sang, sung it in a rather... I mean, he kind of went slightly over the top with it, warbling away. And, <laughs> and, and I was like, I, I was, I went to Nick and I said, is there something we can do to sort of pull him down a bit and blend the song in more? And he really did that. He gave Danny the pad he needed to make his uh, performance work. And it's one of the more, more moving bits in the film, you know, imagining him singing this to Tupac, this unconscious in the hospital. And, and he also, I, I thought the music that he did around Russell's uh, death, mm. uh, you know, was very, very moving. is very emotional and uh yeah he's I, I think he made a great addition to the film i think you need to um or i hope that you are considering making a film not a documentary but a feature film about russell's life because it feels like that's a story that needs to be fully told and explored you know a kind of feature film about 
about Russell's, um, yeah, Russell's story, really. Well, it's a very, very, you know, I mean, there were times when there was more of Russell in the in the film. The thing about this film is there's so many characters in it already, and the story is so complicated that it was quite a, you know, the task in the editing room was just keep it simple. But I I agree. I think you know Russell is a really big character, and although I hope that his influence is somewhat redressed by the film, I think you know the humiliations and the well and the bravery of the guy were pretty in, incredible and i'm i'm sure you know i spoke to his son and, and and wife and i'm sure that they will be you know pleased that there's a piece that sort of salutes him and because it was you know just it was just too much i think what happened and you know the LAPD were just concerned with looking good and doing whatever they needed to do to um, come out of it without a blemish, including withholding evidence, hiding evidence from the Biggie Smalls estate prosecution and so on, you know, for which they were fined a million, a million dollars, telling any number of lies that suited them. You know, very similar, I think, to the case of sort of Daniel Morgan and so on. They're very, just very much more concerned with their own image than they are with anything else. And I think, you know, Russell really believed his father was a was a cop before him. And Russell really believed in the LAPD. He really believed in the sort of oath of honor and all the rest of it. And I guess just was then humiliated and bullied within the force, you know. I can't imagine how awful it must have been. I, I'm sure all those people ganging up on you and all that kind of male aggression within the force must have been unbearable. Yeah. So destroying, really, to think what you must have suffered over such a long period of time. Would you mind if we talked a little bit about My Father and Me, um, which went out on the BBC uh, back in March. Beautiful, beautiful film. Oh, such a gorgeous kind of honest love letter to your father. It's just, it was just, it was such a wonderful thing to watch and really made me want to, well, I phoned my dad straight after actually kind of thing but just sit and look at old footage and old pictures and all that kind of thing and just be really how grateful of your time that you get to spend together I think that that's what it made me feel after watching it it must have been incredibly cathartic for you um and emotional making that film it was it actually um originally it was supposed to coincide with the VNA exhibition and I don't know if you've worked with museums before, but they really work at a sort of glacial speed. <laughs> and they just sort of put things back by years. You know, they don't even, it's not a few months. It's, and so um, this happened about three times. And then obviously COVID came too. And each time I, I, I would then look at the, in fact, you know, originally the film came out in 2019, I think. And it was shown at the New York Film Festival. Mm. And I remember watching it there and a couple of my friends came along, you know, that I was close to and had known my father and stuff. And they were kind of like, yeah, it's good. It's good. But, you know, I think you can go deeper. So I would then re-edit the whole film, change all the music, you know. And, and of course, you know, I'd way already gone way over budget, you know, with it. It'd been largely funded by the Leonard film and other films, you know and then remix the whole thing. And then I did that three times, you know, and then I kept thinking I can go, you know, I can go deeper. I can get this to work better. I can get, you know, so 
because I guess, you know, when it comes to your parents and stuff, you can interpret things so many different ways because you're so close and you can take things different, you know, you can take things negatively or positively or, and I never really thought, I, you know, because my mother died when I was quite young. I was in my 30s and I was, Barney had just been born and stuff. So I didn't really lament the loss or really analyze particularly, you know, what she'd meant to me until I did this film. And that was really cathartic because, you know, I realized how incredibly important she'd been and had done all these very unnoticed, unappreciated things in a way. And I had much, much longer, obviously, with my father to go over things. And, you know, so, so that was a surprising thing, really. The things you learned, the things you realized you haven't really thought through at all. Yeah, and, and so, I, of course, I was, and I was incredibly grateful, actually, for BBC for, uh, you know, I, I know the BBC being slammed all the time now, but they are an institution that I can't think of any other broadcaster that would have allowed someone to make a film about their not particularly well-known father, you know, and take the risk, just take the risk, you know, on something that's probably incredibly uncommercial. And, and so, you know, I thought, wow, it's unbelievable that I'm be giving this, this chance. And, and I think, you know, the, the film was a lot more relevant than any of us thought it would be. You know, was, I was frankly amazed at the response to the film because I thought, well, this is a love letter to my father. <laughs> He, you know, he and my family, well, you know, he's obviously not around, but, you know, my family and friend, close friends will watch it. But it touched so many people. I guess, you know, everyone's got uh, family. And and uh, I guess, you know, it ended up being a, a kind of level which other people could identify with, with their own, in their own families. Well, I think as well, because probably at that time, people still hadn't seen a lot of their families. You know, I saw my dad in April for the first time since October last year. And so it's all that. It's it's the, it's the Even though it's such a personal story for you, it's that universal story of, of, you know, of our dads, of our families. And so I think that that's definitely what I loved about it as well. Wonderful experience doing it and seeing the reaction, actually. It was probably the biggest, greatest moment, I think, in, that I've experienced. Nick's music is stunning. Oh, it's so good. How did it change then? You say you changed the music, like, from that first screening and... We, we put in more of it and we used it... I, we sort of changed... I, I remember changing all... Basically, we changed the soundtrack. And, and because there wasn't really any budget on it, I seem to remember poor Nick, you know, <laughs> playing an awful lot of work. Yeah, I think, I think it, the, the soundtrack probably got a lot more emotional.
I became much clearer about what bits of music belonged to what theme or and what themes were. And I think the more I edited on that, it, it broke down into more particular chapters, really. And also, you know, I was able to tie in more, much in a much more fluent way, you know, my work and his work and our reactions to each other, you know. It's really fascinating as well when you say at that moment about him kind of, you know, he 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 wasn't really a fan of my, my or he said he wasn't a fan of my work, you know, because he was he had he had a specific way of doing things and he saw your way of doing things as the complete opposite of his. But actually the kind of the end product was kind of a really was the integrity, you know, in terms of what it was that you were trying to capture or tell the story of that's kind of what I got from it as well and then yeah, I think so the approaches were different but the end result was was absolutely kind of there yeah and and, and even working with Martin Barnes at the VNA you know who's doing this big book too about um, Morris it was very I learned a lot just talking to him and seeing what he appreciated so much about Morris's work you know things that I hadn't really seen you know or understood or you know sometimes when you're so when you've grown up with something from you were you know when you were in your nappies you you know it's just there you don't really examine it with any kind yeah. of thoroughness yeah so that was kind of uh, you know great thing to do it's it's really clever as well in the way that um there are a couple of the pieces of music within the film, like, um, is it Charmaine, 101 String Orchestra? Right. There's a, there's a piece of music that, without needing to know how you feel about that holiday situation, without hearing how you feel about it, we know I know it instantly from that piece of music, the emotional connection to that family setting and going on holiday and you and your sister and your mum and your dad and your dad jumping it, it it tells us so much more than words can almost just that that little piece of music association yeah
when he and my father was such a romantic, <laughs> you know, just, you know, and and I think it, it was great that his <clears throat> that film he used was kind of like it has that sort of almost technicolor quality about it, <clears throat> the yellows and the reds, and you know, it's all a bit, it's a bit more than it is, you know, it's every or it all jumps out at you, which was yeah, so much the way he looked at life, I think. And when you say, you know, he loved and you had that, that beautiful kind of close up of your mom and she does. She looks like Esther Williams, you know, kind of about to do one of those special dives into the water. And and um, and just when he says and he loved filming her and you can tell the way he frames her in that. It, it's like it's you know, it's, it's a beautiful film, Nick. It really, really is. Yeah. And yeah, of course, we were lucky to have so many images and things. Yeah. And it was, it's great. And he, you know, he has this, it was sweet the other day. Well, on Sunday, actually, I was near Emsworth and I drove in there, which is where he ended up living with Susie. And there's still a competition in the local schools. You know, they take photographs of stuff and, and his friends who are all getting on, you know, very old now, uh, sort of organized this competition. So I went around to see them and it was, you know, sweet. Just as you realize it was still going on and probably encourages the next generation, you know. That's yeah. great. Well, that's what that's what your film and the exhibition does. You know, it continues the knowledge and the appreciation of 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 his work and and your work as well. Do you know what's next? Because you you know you said that Last Man Standing was slight, a slight deviation from this path that you're taken, which is the more personal side of things through you know Marianne and Leonard and my father and me. Do you know what's next? Well, I, I think I, I think I'm I'm looking to tell a story about an artist who, you know, had a vision, but it, it you know was very influenced by his sort of family and background. And I haven't decided quite who yet, but you know, probably some somebody within the period that I grew up in, probably fifties and sixties, that kind of just post-war generation. So uh, you know, um, and get quite a lot of emotion into it so that's what I'm hoping to do next well I hope we get the chance to talk about that when you uh when it's done and it's a real treat to get to chat to you again thanks so much for your time Nick all right thank you so much lovely to talk to you From the soundtrack to Last Man Standing, that's Praying For Him by Nick Laird-Close. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Nick Broomfield. My huge thanks to Nick for taking the time to talk to us. 
Last Man Standing has a limited release in cinemas from Monday and is a fine companion to his original documentary, Biggie and Tupac. You can find my two previous conversations with Nick at edithbowman.com, which is also the place to catch up with all 250-odd episodes of the podcast. And you can follow us, please, if you will, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. Next up is composer Dominic Scherer, who worked on the brilliant BBC thriller The Serpent, which is available on Netflix and iPlayer, and I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs> 